Welcome and good morning. Uh, before I begin today, I have one announcement. I don't know. We don't often have it, at least coming from me, is that uh, according to the, the Constitution of Trinity Bible Church, we have elders who serve in two consecutive three-year terms. But after three years, we put out to the congregation uh, the, the uh, time period, at least for congregants to consider the reaffirmation of elders. And so we have three elders who are, uh, by the end of this year, coming up to their three-year mark. That is Mike Garrett, Phil Bance, and Bo Andrews. And so what we uh, put out there for is if there is any uh, doubt or concern about any of those three serving in the capacity of elder again, uh, we have the following to put forth to the congregation. Uh, number one is if there is a personal concern, meaning there's an existing issue perhaps between you or one of the elders or, or members of your family that it is your responsibility as a Christian man or woman or couple to go to that elder to make that right. And, and if that is made right, then that would be considered um, a resolved issue that would not uh, in any way disqualify them for continuing in their role. If there is something that is a uh, like that that is approached where then the elder rebuffs the individual and says, nah, I'm good, I'm perfect, leave me alone. Then and only then would we expect that you reach out to one of the other existing elders to say, I need help, will you please come talk to me with, and then that is how it would move forward. So we are giving, um, they would be reaffirmed uh, January 1st, uh, and until you have until that time then to, uh, in any way, shape, or form, um, approach them, talk to them, or talk to the other elders. Uh, while you're doing so at all times, always be praying for the elders of the church as being called to shepherd and watch over the flock, and primarily um, focusing on the ministry of the word and prayer. So I just wanted to put that out there. You have time. Um, I forgot to announce that last week. Now, we are uh, in the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, We are still in chapter 13, but it's because it's a long chapter, not because I'm going slow. And so the continuing in chapter 13... Jesus has introduced the teaching of parables. He's already, as we've talked about, the parable of the sower. He's already revealed to his disciples the purpose of the parables is to hide the truth from some and reveal the truth to his people, to the, to the seed, to uh, those who are receiving the gospel, to the kingdom citizens, as I've been calling them throughout um, the preaching of Matthew. And now as he will continue in these parables, he's going to continue through today in our reading. We'll go through a couple of different ones as well as a proclamation again of re-kind of instituting the idea that he had done earlier by talking about why he's teaching in parables. And remember, the the makeup of this teaching has not changed from the first moment of Jesus coming on the scene until now. Uh, The way that Matthew writes his gospel is that there are Uh, primary groups. There are the disciples, those who are believing in Jesus and following him, not limited to the apostles, but those who are believing him, a larger number. There's sometimes the moniker of the 12, which would remark on those who would be called apostles. And then also there's the crowds, and the crowds are general in nature, meaning the people that were coming to listen to Jesus, but they are often, they are not 
considered disciples. They are people coming to listen. And then there are opponents, the opponents of Jesus who are emphasized often in their hostility and their challenge of him. And then they're generally denoted as those who are religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And so this continues as you see the the different things with Jesus being surrounded by the crowds. And so if you're new here or it's been a while, I'll be reading from the entirety of of Scripture and then uh, give you an opportunity to pray in in quiet um, contemplation uh, uh, leading into the time of the ministry of the Word. And then I will pray for us corporately. So today, uh, reading from verses starting in 1324 all the way down to 1343. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So, when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Unless in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And then at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like that of a woman who took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. The word of God. Please take this time to pray.
Heavenly Father, as we, your church, are gathered here on the Lord's Day, Lord, may we be filled with God, the Holy Spirit. May we be illuminated by the Word. May our minds be open to its truth. While we, transformed into new creations, we are not yet completed as we will be at the end of the age in the coming of Christ in our resurrection bodies. And so now we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with the depravity of the flesh. God, we struggle with the idolatry of our hearts. And Lord, so when we come on the Lord's Day, when the faithful Christian man and woman gather and come together to celebrate their union with Christ, may you, through the Spirit and the Word, sharpen our minds, put everything else that's in the background, everything else that seeks to distract us, And let us be firmly focused on the word. God, your true and faithful message to your people. God, now take this time as our continued worship. And may it glorify you. May we be challenged by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we be comforted in the knowledge of of our position in his family as adopted sons and daughters and future recipients of the kingdom in its fullness. Lord, we pray for the unbelievers in our midst. We pray, God, that this day and this time, your sovereign plan, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in eternity past, has appointed this morning, this time, and through the ministry of your word and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that dead hearts would be made new and living. People would be brought to faith through regeneration of the Spirit and an understanding and given faith so that they may turn from dead works and be renewed in Christ and fellow kingdom citizens. God, all this time we owe to you All the glory belongs to you. Let us unite in one mind through the union we share with Christ to continue to glorify you in our celebration of the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. This is a long reading. It's a series of parables. It's one, uh, much like with the, the sower, where the parable is given at the beginning and there's a little bit more talk and discussion, and then the parable is actually explained by Jesus in the end. And so actually today, going to go start in the middle and kind of work ourselves to the end there. This is a, a unified instruction. Jesus is teaching not just in parables, but he's repeating the similar truths that he's trying to communicate over and over again. The the writer or the author, Matthew, uh, superintended by the the Holy Spirit in the authoring of this gospel, these themes continue throughout. And so if you're 
careful in your reading, you'll see that the parable is given to who? The crowds. And then as the crowds are gathered and listening, he even tells a couple more parables all about, they're all about the kingdom. And in the midst of that, again, inserts an Old Testament passage about the purpose of the parables, secret truths. But then when he leaves and the crowds dissipate and he goes back to the house, it says, there he is with the disciples, the ones who are his, the ones who are already citizens in his new kingdom. And then they ask, please explain what that means. And then only to the disciples does he explain the meaning behind it. And so there's a few observations I want you to make about the kingdom in general before we get into Jesus' explanation. These are general. These are used throughout the parables. And I think there's importance for us if you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, if you are born again, There's importance for you to understand these truths about the kingdom, which you are a part of, which the church is. And as the church and a citizen of the kingdom and a Christian in a fallen kingdom, but have an inheritance in God's perfect kingdom, there's things that are important to recognize about that kingdom. Number one, look at all the way. Imagine, if you will, if you are a a first century Jew. And, and you have been, and you are a people whose history is defined by being rescued by the one true God, chosen for no reason whatsoever, not out of goodness, not out of anything, but just chosen out all of people of creation. And you've been given a land. You've been given prophets. You've been given the word. And yet as all of humanity, prone to stray and to make idols out of any conceivable thing, rebels against the God who has redeemed you over and over again. And so, in God's chastisement of his people's sin, gives them over to foreign nations, ungodly people, in multiple times. And here you are, once again, under the rule of a foreign government. You went from Egypt to the land of Canaan through a few hundred years of relative freedom to Assyria, to Babylon, to Persia, nation after nation after nation over you. And then for a relative short time, then from Persia to Greece. And then for a very short time, a generation, the yoke of Greece is lifted and then in comes Rome. But all those times, these messages of Redeemer, King, the one who will come from the line, from the seed of Jesse, the branch, the Davidic kingship will return and he is going to rule and reign. It's what you're waiting for. You're waiting for a return of David and in his likeness, a charismatic warrior king who's going to kill all of the Romans 
and set up kingdom there in Jerusalem. And any other foreign ruler that comes, he's going to kill all of them too. Yet Messiah comes and he's unrecognizable by the people who were supposed to be waiting for him. Why? He doesn't come with a sword. He doesn't come with armies. He comes with a word, a message of peace, and a message that it's not just for you. It's for all peoples of the earth. And so when Jesus is talking about the kingdom and he compares it to seed, to leaven, he's comparing it to slow-growing things that at first are not that noticeable. But then he's using it to say it'll take over the whole loaf. It'll soon become a branch that the birds nest in. It becomes a beautiful thing. All of these things are showing his now disciples and future disciples and for you and I. This kingdom comes with a word and it comes as peace and it comes in the midst of this broken fallen kingdom but there'll be a time when it'll eclipse all that's around it that's the mustard seed it's not it's not just look at the mustard seed show kids a mustard seed and it grows into this great tree if you've ever seen a mustard tree It's not that great. It's not that big. Because that's not the point. It's not comparing it to a hundred-year oak tree. The illustration is to show it's going to grow. It's growing slowly. One day, it will overlap everything. Meaning Jesus is pointing not to what we see here and now. When you look at the world here and now, what his disciples were looking there and now, at the handful of people in a room where Jesus is saying, you're part of the kingdom. And they're looking around going, this kingdom isn't very big. And we're, we're surrounded by crowds and hostile people. And he's informing them using these agricultural um, truths as allegory to point to a bigger truth. That God's kingdom is growing and one day that's all that'll be there. All that'll be there will be God's kingdom and his people. You see, he's not just interested in one small geographic area in the Middle East. That belongs to him. The whole world is God's. All of creation belongs to him. He's not just claiming a sliver of land. He's reclaiming what belongs to him. That's what eschatology is about. The recreation of that which was broken reclaiming and making the whole world Eden. Because it belongs to him. So these messages about the kingdom, the seed and all these things and the leaven is to show not just interesting illustrations. It's to show you that the kingdom is growing slowly and it continues to grow slowly. But the time at the end, at the end of the age, that's all that will be is God's kingdom. And if you are in Christ, you are a recipient of that. God's kingdom is growing slowly. But it will be all that remains at the end of the age. 
So what does that do for the here and now? Well, Jesus explains that. He explains that in a way that, that is something we've joked about and talked about. Like it should be, a, it's a great band name. It's eschatological hope. It's eschatology is the study of the end times or the study of the last days. But really the last days is something that's a part of all of everything from Genesis. When Genesis is talking about Jesus or he's talking about Messiah crushing the head of the stake, it's looking towards that hope. The Christian man and woman, when you are redeemed and you are brought to new life in Christ, that initial hope and that initial surge of thank you, God, is in the moment, but it's looking forward to your new creation. Do you understand? Like eschatology, as Gerhardus Voss would say, precedes soteriology, meaning The end comes before your salvation moment. Christ already had your end in mind, meaning your salvation came with the purpose of your completedness in Christ. So when you come to faith in Christ, in the midst of the still broken world where the kingdom is slowly growing, your hope is in that moment of transformation, but not for that moment. It's for the final aspect of who you are. When you are completed in glory, the blessed hope of the Christian church is the return of Christ and the bringing in this kingdom that he's preaching about. So, going through the mustard seed, the leaven, the parables, opening the mouth in parables, utter what has been hidden, and then looking into 36... He left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Stop right there. Jesus tells them, and this is the best and the most frustrating part about preaching something like this. When you're preaching Lectio Continua, or you're, you're expository preaching verse by verse, you immediately, your training is to go the first part of this parable of the sword. I'm like, I know what this means. I'm going to put some interesting things. I'm going to come up. And then you keep reading. You're like, wait, Jesus gave the answer. So I'm not going to preach from that. I have to preach from this. Because Jesus is the one that gave the answer. But he also is the one that says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Jesus is the sower. Jesus is the one putting his kingdom where it is. Meaning the, the authority of that aspect as he's telling his disciples, he's telling them they're fishers of men. He's calling them from all aspects of life, from, from Gentile, centurion, to fisherman, to tax collector, to just that general great um, description of sinner. He's calling them from all parts of the world. His His seed is being cast, as the the former parable, on the good soil. But it's not just in one area. It's everywhere. It's all over the place. And it's not just in one central area because he says, I'm the one who sows the good seed. But this is the best part. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. 
Now, you won't find oftentimes where I ever mention people from church history like Augustine and John Calvin and where I say I disagree with them. But here's one of those moments. They both viewed this passage or this parable in the following way. They viewed it as talking specifically about the church and the church itself being the focus of it. And that this parable is about about the enemy sowing false believers amongst the church. And then so the, the application of that for both men, one in the 4th century, one in the 16th century, was that there was very little you could do about it. You just continued preaching the word, and at the end of the age, those who were false will be separated by Christ. The problem with that translation is that it does the specificity of the word itself that Jesus is saying that it's the world is the field, not the church. Now, Alistair Begg once gave an example of disagreeing with Calvin. And then he said when he would get to heaven, he might have to apologize. So I leave that out there. I don't have a great Scottish accent, but he has a funnier part that goes along with it. But I say that in all seriousness is when the parable itself, he's speaking to his disciples. His disciples at this point are made up of already a small amount of non-Jews and Jews from all parts of society. And he's telling them, I'm the one, not only when he's telling them he's the one who has sowed the seed, he's saying, I'm the one who called you. I'm the one who gathered you. It was, a, it was a remembrance of the fact that when Jesus was getting and gathering his disciples, he was just pointing at people and saying, follow me. And others were drawn to him saying, I have to tell you about this person that I heard. Jesus is drawing and calling his disciples to himself. He's letting them know with absolute authority the hope that they have. And this is one thing maybe you don't struggle with. But if there's anyone, one person in here who does, I want you to hear this. The security that you have in the knowledge that if you are in Christ, that is something that nothing in creation can take away from you. Nothing. He's the sower. Christ has done so, and it was something that was planned before Genesis 1. You were in mind as a loved, adopted son and daughter. And this is where you have to be. Thank you. This is where you have to be where? Our own sinfulness that still is a part of us. When you indulge it, when you fail, can convince you that this is not true. And the enemy rejoices. Do not be convinced that you can lose your position. And if you are grieved by an indulgence in sinfulness, that's a good sign. 
And that grief should lead you. And it will lead you to things like shame, fear, isolation. But Christ just wants you to give it to him. He knows your weakness. He knows your fallibility because he paid the price for it. But he also is the one who sowed the seed with your name on it and stamped you as a seal in his family for the blessed hope of the Christian church. The son of man sows the good seed. The field is the world, meaning that Jesus sowed seed throughout creation. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, meaning anyone who is a kingdom citizen. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. To quote the kids, things just got real. I guess that's pretty old. The kids are like, no one says that anymore. (laughs) Old, bald guy. All right, so... What is, he, what is he telling them? If there's anything that Jesus wants his followers to know is that everywhere you go, and I'm giving away the ending at the beginning, because what does it say? It says, those, when, he, when all of this takes place and Jesus returns, the righteous will shine like the sun. But right now we don't shine like the sun. Right now we depend totally and wholly on Christ for every moment of life every need, every desire. And he's telling them explicitly, you're a part of this kingdom and this kingdom has enemies and the enemies are everywhere. And the general of that army of enemies is the devil. He's letting them know these fishermen, these sinners, these soldiers, these tax collectors... When I leave and you take up my name and you send this message to other people and the ones that are coming to faith and believing, those are the ones who are the seed that I've sown and the ones that are trying to kill you for a message are the sons of the devil. He's letting them know there's a conflict with which they have been conscripted And they are now marked as an enemy. And where are the enemies? Everywhere. The weeds sown amongst the wheat, the illustration, the allegory, is that those who are the good seed, those who are in Christ, you live life with the weeds. Now, as a sarcastic individual, Don't begin referring to unbelievers as weeds. And don't, if you have a conversation with someone, you're trying to evangelize, I don't suggest the approach of, you're a weed. And God's a weed whacker and he's coming. No, none of that. That's not here. But imagine that. I've asked you, imagine some first century things, but, but imagine that message. You're a part of God's kingdom. Something everyone was supposed to be waiting for. 
And now that you're mine, you got a target on your back. The weeds encompass your neighborhood, your workplace, your schools, government, no joke, all of culture and society. Is it any wonder to you when you when you think about cultural things, and I know everyone's mind's been on that for, for years now, is it any wonder to you that the world is the way that it is? Is it any wonder to you that children are targeted? Is it any wonder to you that marriage is targeted? Does it amaze you that to you who has the Spirit of God that the most unclean, unfathomable things are put up as virtues in this world of weeds. It shouldn't. And oftentimes the way we approach it is the opposite of what Jesus gave earlier in this example of the kingdom is growing slowly. It's slowly growing in the midst of this. And at the end, none of these will be left. There will be no weeds. There'll be no death. There'll be no evil. None of it will all be gone. Just the kingdom. But until, until such a time, you're to go out and continue in the same manner that Christ and the commission that he's given all of us to gently give a word about the gospel and the one who has redeemed you and calls all to repentance of dead works. One author wrote, it's interesting, I should not try to, try not to look, but he made an observation about how patience is called a virtue. And yet patience is rarely found within the church when it comes to discussions about the kingdom, evangelism, whatever it might be. He gives examples of missionaries who were out in the field for decades, in in three or four decades, and saw no conversions amongst the people whose language they learned, who they toiled into write a Bible for them. And then five years after their death, an entire tribe comes to faith in Christ. He writes stories about other aspects of the faithful in the second and third centuries put to death for their faith. And he talks about patience. He talks about gentleness. And he gives the example of, but you don't see that often in the church today. And he goes on a weird route and says, the hammer is an amazing tool. Everyone should own a hammer. But it shouldn't be your only tool. But what he often observed is that Christians, when dealing with unbelievers or even the culture of the weeds around us, tend to only want to use a hammer, even on a screw. I know people who will tell me about interactions with unbelievers and use the phrase, I hammered them. 
be like, no. <laughs> the word. Jesus wasn't just here to save. He's not just here to give an example. He's also showing us how it spreads. It's a miraculous work of the spirit. And in the midst of that spirit, in the spirit of Christ, gentleness is needed. A person who is an unbeliever has no idea what you're talking about. And they might call you a liar. And they might laugh at you. And they might mock you. You're supposed to expect that. The Son of Man sowed the good seed. The field is the world. The enemy is the evil one, the devil. And then he writes, the harvest is the close is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. And as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it's going to be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, throw them in the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The righteous then will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus, at the end of the age, when he returns, when he comes back to institute his kingdom, recreates heaven and earth, all this will be sorted out. Judgment will be rendered on unbelief. And objects of wrath will be cast into hell. Objects of mercy, his people, his church, what does it say? Will shine like the sun. No longer marred by sin, but in his promise of following him in resurrection, new life, this fallen kingdom, broken by sin, will no longer be fallen. It will be Christ's kingdom, recreated in glory. His people, no longer fallen, recreated in glory. And in that hope, we will be in that kingdom, recipients of God's promise from all eternity. That moment isn't here yet. Right now, we're in the muck. We're surrounded by the weeds. And if you're honest with yourself, sometimes you're enamored by the weeds. Sometimes you go astray and forget you're the good seed. The gospel calls us to be the good seed. And while we don't shine like the sun now, we have opportunity to shine at moments that God gives you, every one of you who are in Christ. You will have moments, I guarantee, this week to shine. Don't shrink away. Don't be fearful. Don't be thinking of shame. Don't be thinking of ridicule. Don't be thinking of hostility. Think of what we're supposed to have our minds set on. I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. Jesus calls me the seed that he sowed. 
And he tells me that in the end, my inheritance is to shine like the sun in the kingdom of my father. That's hope. That's the fuel for the Christian life. Empowered by the mind that is moved by the spirit through the power of the word. That I am his. I pray that we're a church. Where we are reminded constantly daily through the spirit, through the reading of the word, through our relationships with one another, that who we are in Christ And while we are sinners and while we err and while we are broken, God, His mercy is so much more. His grace is so much greater than our shame. I pray all of you take this message to heart. May the church be edified through the reading of the word. May the unbelievers be convicted and transformed by the power of the Spirit and the Word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you are glorified in our continued worship. God, we pray that you, your mercy and your grace is, is through the Holy Spirit on all this congregation as we continue in the worship coming to the table. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, and our inheritance. We pray, may you continue to be glorified. May the church be encouraged in Christ's name. Amen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.